Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to All the Wiser. I'm Kimmy Kolf. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every inspiring interview you hear, we donate $2,000 to charities around the world. I believe in the power of storytelling to inspire us all to think differently about the world around us. So I've combed the country for some of the most jaw-dropping stories you have ever heard. People who have been to the brink and back, stories of survival against all odds, and whose lives have been changed in unthinkable ways. Before we get started, I want to tell you to follow us on Instagram at All The Wiser Podcast. So many of our listeners have told me that they love Googling our guests after they hear them interviewed, which is exactly what we do on our Instagram feed. We try and bring every story and the people behind it to life visually. You will see pictures, videos, behind the scenes moments, and have a heads up in your feed every time we're dropping a new episode. Check it out at All The Wiser Podcast. Now on to today's interview with Kathleen Gallagher. Beginning in her 20s, Kathleen Gallagher was stalked by a high school classmate she barely knew for over a decade. She describes those years as being hunted like an animal. The patterns of her stalker's psychological abuse and the day he kidnapped her read like a Hollywood script. Kathleen survived. Not only did she survive a decade of being hunted and the day of her kidnapping, but she went on to bravely share her story until it ultimately became the foundation of our country's first anti-stalking laws. From that day forward, she dedicated her life to women's safety. And her message is not one of fear. It is a message of knowledge, of power, and a deep sense of awareness. Her words and her work have saved more women than she will ever know. Here's today's interview with Kathleen Gallagher, otherwise known as the safety chick. Kathleen, welcome to All the Wiser. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Well, I'm really excited to have this conversation with you today. We had a chance to connect before, and I think everyone listening will get so much out of your story. So, so thank you, and let's dive in. I want to start at the beginning, if you will. Paint a picture of the backdrop of your childhood and upbringing. Well, it was just a yeah, average, I, I guess, normal whatever normal is, is normal, is normal even a thing? But no, it was a very, I grew up in a, in a great community, Redwood City, small town in Northern California, very community active. My parents were very active. My dad was my track coach. I started running the hundred meters at nine years old and, you know, was just very involved and went 
to all the public schools in the town and all within walking distance. So for the most part, every everybody was really supportive and it was a, a great childhood. And I didn't know you started running and with your dad that early because we'll talk about it later, but there is a day that we will talk about in detail that your speed and your running to some extent saved your life. <laughs> so I'm glad at nine you prepared yourself for that moment. It all started. That was it. <laughs> Why we're here today is to share your journey about being stalked for close to a decade of your life, which I know began in college, and the road since, and, and sort of how you have taken that chapter of your life and turned it into truly your life's work and impact. Right. Can you tell me where you were in time and space when you met the man who would eventually become your stalker and that first encounter? Oh yeah, sure. Well, we were we went to high school together, but he wasn't a close friend. He was he was actually kind of a loner in high school and so, you know, never more than high in the hallway. We were on the track team together, but really didn't have a lot of interaction all through all through high school. And the first encounters begin in college. What is the memory of when you become aware? I mean, it gets real. It was my junior year of college. I went to UCLA and I was home for Thanksgiving vacation. So Redwood City and, and LA, are about it's about a five or six hour drive up the five. And so I was home for Thanksgiving vacation and just got a strange phone call from a guy that said, hey, this is Mike, you know, how are you doing? And I didn't, I didn't recognize him. I didn't know, you know, who this Mike guy was. He said, before I went to UCLA, I transferred and I, I ran track for two years. I was on track scholarship at Menlo College for two years, which is in Northern, you know, the Bay Area, and then transferred down to UCLA my junior year. So this phone call was that he pretended that his name was Mike and that he had gone to Menlo with me. And he started asking me kind of these questions that didn't really make any sense. Like, did I take PE or, you know, it, it was college. And so it was just, it, it just wasn't making sense. But as women do, you know, I didn't want to say, who the heck is this? You know, I just kind of kept playing along because I didn't want to hurt his feelings. And it just got really kind of strange. So I ended up just hanging up on him. And, you know, I just said to myself, well, that, that was strange and kind of went on about, about my evening. And the next day, my parents had were actually taking my brother to the airport, so I was home alone. And the phone started ringing, and I picked it up, and there was no one on the other end. And then there was a click, and that's that. the The phone call started every like five minutes, five to ten minutes for like an hour. The phone would ring. I would pick it up and hang up, pick up, hang up. And so finally, at the end, I said, "You know, I know who this is." I was just saying that because I was irritated, right? And he said, I heard the voice. And he said, why are you talking to me? You, you never used to talk to me before. Why are you talking to me now? And the interesting thing is I, um, at that point, did recognize his voice because he had a speech impediment. And it just clicked with me. And then he, and he hung up. And I went up to my high school yearbook and I went through and looked and saw who he is. I don't want to say his name. I don't really talk much about him now because again, what we'll get into with stalkers now that I've become, you know, an expert in this space, he hasn't 
bothered me for several years. And so I try not to use his name in the media just to keep him out of it, to not draw attention to him at all. So anyway, so that's, that's basically how it started. It was hangups and then hearing his voice and then realizing who it was, right? So you make that connection and I'm assuming based on what he said about not seeing him or giving him attention, there was obviously sort of a distant infatuation or would it be an anger that you didn't acknowledge him? You know, you'd have to ask him that, but it was a fixation that that started and grew. Let's just say that. So that next day after the phone calls, I went down um, to see my friend at Menlo College to visit him. And I was driving down the road and I looked next to me and there was a truck next to me and it was my stalker. And he saw the startled look on my face and he sped away. And as he sped away, he had a gun hanging in a gun rack in his back window. And I went down to, to Menlo and ran in and, and uh, my friend's name was Brian. And I said, Brian, you know, the, this guy has been calling me and he just you know, was driving next to me and he said, okay, you know, we, he ran out and he tr- tried to find him and he wasn't anywhere to be found. Later on that night, I had Brian drive me home. He drove my car because I was a little, you know, just nervous. And we dro- pulled into my parents' driveway. My parents were out to dinner and I got out of the car first and my stalker came out of the bushes behind me and just walked towards me and I froze. And um, he didn't say anything, but he was looking at me. You know, when you look at someone and he was just looking, there was the lights were on, but no one was home. It was just this vacant look. It wasn't drugs or alcohol. It was just a, just kind of a vaporous a boy. type. Yeah. And so Brian jumped out and got in between us and he said, you know, what are you doing? What do you want? And all, all the stalker said was, how old are you? To Brian. And Brian just said, I don't know, probably about your age. And, and he just ran and jumped back in his car and, and took off. So Brian and I went into the house and I had um, a friend of mine staying there, Joanne, and the phone rang. We, you know, we told her, oh my God, this is, you know, I said, this is crazy. What, what is going on here? And the phone rang and Joanne picked it up and the, let's just call him for the sake of this interview, his name's John. I don't want to keep saying the stalker. So let's call him John. Okay. So Joanne picked up the phone and it was John. And he said, tell the big guy I'm going to kill him. And she's like, what? And he said, yeah, I have 180 rounds of ammunition and uh, I'm going to blow him away. And she's like, listen, Kathleen's going back down to school tomorrow. Why don't you just leave her alone? Get, you know? And he said, oh yeah, well we have, you know, we still have tonight and she's not going to make it back down there. Now, this is, you have to understand, this is in one day. This isn't like, this is out of the blue. I haven't been in high school for three years. I have not seen this person for three years. And this is the first, you know, run-in, so to speak. To hear you say my stalker versus John, I like that shift. (laughs) To have to say that over and over. But I'm so curious. I mean, I imagine in your shoot, what is happening in your body and mind? I mean, is your heart racing? Is it panic? Well, I think when that first starts, you're in disbelief. You're just in, there's a lot of denial, a lot of like, this is, you're just trying to, it's not like 
adrenaline. It's, it's more just what is going on. You're trying to put all these pieces together and it's just so bizarre and out of the blue that you're trying to make sense of it. You know, you're in the moment of it. So when we hung up the phone, I called the police. I called 911 and I told them what, what had gone on and we had a vehicle description. And so police went and waited across the street and sure enough, he came driving back by a couple hours later and the police were able to, you know, chase him and they chased him throughout the city, pulled him over on the other side of town. And he indeed had 180 rounds of ammunition, semi-automatic weapon, loaded clip under his seat. And, you know, he was arrested for, he basically was put it, you know, they have a 72 hour cycle to kind of assess what's going on. Now, remember at the time there were no stalking laws on the books. There was not even the word stalking. This was 1982. I mean, this was you know, before any of this came to the forefront. So he gets the psych hold. You're back at college. What follows next? So three months later, I was back at school, but had come up back up north for the weekend. And I was out with my friends. I had come home to find my house surrounded by police cars. So I went running in saying, you know, what's going on? And my dad told me that, John had showed up at the front door looking for me. And he said, you know, she's not here. And as he turned and walked away, he said that he thought he saw um, a gun in the the back of his belt. And so he went and sat in his car for a little bit. And so my, my dad called the police. And as they were coming to the house, John drove off. So when I got back into the house, the police were in the home and, he, and they said, look, we've put a tap on your phone. So if he calls, you need to keep him on the line so we can trace and try to find him. So I'm like, this is just, this is out of a movie. Are you kidding me? So we waited there for a little bit and sure enough, he called and I picked up the phone and started talking to him. And he said, why is your dad afraid of me? Why is everyone afraid of me? And I'm like, well, in my head, I said, well, maybe it's the, you know, semi-automatic weapons you bring. <laughs> Hello. But I just said, I don't know what makes you say that. He goes, why do you keep calling the police? You know, whatever. And then, so I tried to keep him on as long as I could. And he ended up hanging up and sh- the police were able to track him. And again, they pulled him over on the other side of town. He did indeed have, again, the semi-automatic weapon, the loaded clip under a seat. He had bullets stuffed into cassette tapes. So he was arrested again. And this time a detective did a thorough interview with him. And the next day that detective, Ron Brooks, came over to my house, sat my parents and I down and said, look, you have a serious situation here and you're going to need to get a restraining order. And in that conversation, you learn a lot after the interview about what has in fact happened in the three months leading up to this night. What was he doing in those past three months? So he quit his job, bought a different car, and in the matter of a week, broke into my parents' house, went through their address book, got my address down at UCLA, drove down to UCLA, tried to find me, waited out in front and couldn't, so called my apartment and got my roommate. My roommate did not know who it was and so told him that I was gone back to my parents for the weekend. So he turned around and drove all the way back up there 
And this time, he had a knife, he had rope, he had, his plan was to kidnap me. And so that's when, you know, Detective Brooks said, look, this is serious. You know, you need to get a restraining order. And so we did. And he was put in a kind of an outpatient Langley Porter and mental institution assessing him for a while. And then he was put on three years probation. I'm curious, why wasn't there a restraining order earlier from the previous? Because we thought it was just a one-time thing. It was just out of the blue, just a, you know, a one-time, that was weird. There, there wasn't enough there to get a restraining order. Got it. He didn't, you have to prove, to get a restraining order, you have to prove a pattern of behavior. Yeah, I've heard it's hard. <laughs> right. And I can only imagine <laughs> then how difficult it must have been. Yeah, then it was completely different. And and again, I mean, the police said, look, until he lays a hand on you, there's nothing we can do. So, you know, for three years then, he he was on parole up in Northern California. I then graduated from school and was living in Marina Del Rey down in LA with a bunch of girlfriends and, you know, was okay, but still always had in the back of my mind. And, and you're right. I mean, from the point of that second time when I heard and we got the restraining order, you know, I really did live in fear. I was, by that time it was escalated and I would, you know, look, was constantly looking over my shoulder. And what's so difficult about that is that, you know, you're trying to have, I was a UCLA cheerleader and you know, trying to, you know, have a great time through college. And then just after college, I was dancing for, um, remember LA gear, the tennis shoe company. I was a, I was an LA gear girl and we traveled all over the country doing their dance fashion shows. And so, you know, you're trying, you're, you're in your twenties, you're trying to have this life, but deep down inside, you've got this pit because you know that there's someone out there wishing to do you harm. Is it always with you? I mean, are there moments of peace? I would imagine you find peace and comfort and then it surfaces, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's constantly there under the surface, but, you know, I was flying all over the country and and, and all of that. So yeah, it was kind of out of sight, out of mind a lot of times, but, but I did develop a heightened sense of awareness of people around me. And that's, you know, that's really, if we're, we'll, we'll go through it, but how I became the safety chicken, how, why I became a personal safety crime prevention expert is because I lived it. For all these years, I had to learn every aspect of personal safety from the obvious self-defense to how to keep my information private to how to secure my home inside and out. So this is a, you know, this is decades of, of learning innately. So there's three years of travel, 20-something, this obviously constant present dance, if you will, in your head in all of these measures for your personal safety. After the passage of the three years, something happens again and he resurfaces. Can you share that story with us? Sure. So I was with my roommate down on the beach. We lived right on the beach in Marina del Rey. And I remember it was Cinco de Mayo. So we were all down there having Coronas or whatever. And we were walking back into our apartment complex. And I had, again, this innate feeling out of the corner of my eye. I saw somebody down the path that stood out to me because they were in, it was a really hot day. And this person was in dark jeans 
and a and a just a, a plain white t-shirt, but he just stood out and it was him. It was John. So I calmly, <laughs> not really, but grabbed my roommate to not make a scene and I walked her into our unit, shut the door, and I said, John is out there. Don't pant, John is out there. So we ran, we ran up the stairs to the roof deck so that we could see what was going on. At the same time, I'm calling 911. I have a restraining order in place on him, okay, in Santa Monica, in the the Marina Del Rey area with that police department, okay? So I call 911, and they put me on hold. (laughs) And I watch him go to his car, get a gun out, put it in a paper bag, and start coming back around to the front of my unit. And so the police were able to get on the phone with me. I told them what was going on. I gave them the vehicle description. And my roommate said, oh my God, he's, he's coming in. We thought he was coming in the front door. So there's a, just by the grace of God, they were tarring our roof. So there was a ladder in our balcony on our, on our roof. And so she was able to climb up the ladder and jump over into our neighbor's roof deck and there, our, our next door neighbor happened to be laying out on a chaise lounge. And so he was, he was there and he, you know, caught her, heard all the screaming and caught her. I jumped over and I punctured my calf on a wrought iron um, planter hook that was, that was out on his side. And so I'm screaming, he's screaming, she's screaming, everyone's yelling. And John hears all this. And so he goes, we, we see him go get back into his car and drive off. And literally the police passed him in the alley. So the police come in and get the full report. I have to go to the hospital and get stitches. A police officer shows up in the emergency room, a, a female police officer, and says, okay, John has been calling. We've been in your unit, securing your unit. John has been calling, and believe it or not, I mean, again, this was the 80s, right? They set up a meeting with him at a restaurant down the street. She, the female police officer, was pretending to be my roommate and said, well, listen, why don't you, me and Kathleen, all talk this out? I'll say, you know, because, and so John was, you know, agreeing to meet with me, right? And so I'm on crutches, and this police officer is undercover and there's other police officers on the outside of the restaurant and we go in and sit down, which they would never do this in this day and age. I mean, you do not do that with a victim. You know, you don't have them be the, the, uh, the bait. bait. Yeah. (laughs) So we went to the restaurant and are sitting there. It's an out outdoor place. And I just, I just, again, was just in dismay that this was even occurring, but part of me too wanted him arrested. So I felt like, okay, now this is part of my team, right? I became like, I want to get this guy put away. So I'm sitting there with her and we wait and wait and wait and he doesn't show up. So we go home and then we walk in and the phone rings and I pick it up and he says, what do you think? I'm stupid. So I went and stayed at a friend's house that night and they were monitoring, you know, the unit from the outside. And they were able, sure enough, later on that night, he came back by. The police were able to track him and arrest him and send him back up north for violation of restraining order. So I'm still in Marina Del Rey, and he's now back in jail for violation of restraining order for 60 days in San Mateo County Jail. So 
throughout this process, you've already talked about the ever-present fear and the intuition, right? To know you're crossing the street and sensing. Do you go to the worst case scenario? Do you have nightmares? Do you think this man may kill me? Or in your deepest, darkest space, where do you sit? Oh, of course. I mean, yeah, of course. I mean, you know, that incident really put me in fear because I had never been hurt before. And this time, not only did I see the gun, but I also got injured, right? So no, it was extremely traumatic. So much so that I made the decision to leave my career in Los Angeles, something that I loved, and move back home with my parents for a while because I was pretty shaken up. You know, it was very traumatic, definitely post-traumatic syndrome. And, you know, just needed to kind of heal, so to speak, because I punctured my calf. I had stitches. I was on crutches and really just wanted to be feel safe. So I went home with and, and stayed with my parents for a while. I've heard you talk about a story. All of these stories give me chills. And actually, that was my first time hearing the story about, you know, the roof and jumping, which sounds like a movie, by the way. I mean, this all is a, a movie playing out that you horrifically were living But I know there's another moment when I heard you speak of it where I just grabbed my heart because it is sort of just this thing that people do and families do when he appears at your door. Can you share that story with us? He was put in jail for violation of restraining order and then put on probation for another three years. And in that three years, I met my now ex-husband, but my husband. My ex-husband's name is Greg. I was living in Greg's house right before we were married. So nothing was in my name. I felt safe. I felt secure. You know, how would this guy find me? And so, and plus I had, you know, Greg's 6'6", 250, big guy. And um, so I was feeling okay, you know? And one night we ordered a Domino's pizza and I answered the door and John was the Domino's pizza delivery guy. And to this day, I don't know if that was coincidence or if he had gotten wind that I was living, you know, I, I don't know. That has never been hashed out. But all I know is that's when, here we go again, that's when the sighting started. So he started showing up at my door again. So I went to the Menlo Park Police Department, gave them my restraining order, explained the history, everything that had gone on. Because now remember, this had been so many years that I learned that I had to be my own case detective. I had to manage my own stalking case to stay alive, right? So, and the key is to stay alive as a stalking victim, you have to stay one step ahead of your stalker. When he would show up in front of my house, I would call the police and they would race off to try to get him. Well, finally, it was in January of 90, they were able to catch him out in front of my house, arrest him and put him in jail for violation of restraining order. He shows up at that terrifying Domino's pizza moment, which now the pattern is back. He is back in your life. You have the local police force deeply engaged. There is a culmination, if you will, a bit of an end to this nightmare that you lived. What was that moment, which to some extent marked the end of this nearly decade chapter in your life? I got a call from John's probation officer because he had been let out of jail and he was on probation. Okay. I got a call from his probation officer saying that he didn't show up for his meeting that day 
and that he'd been acting despondent. And he really felt like I needed to be on the lookout because he really felt he was coming back after me. Now, Greg is gone. I'm home alone. My parents live 10 minutes from me, right? But I have to tell you, I had had enough. And I said, you know what? I just want this thing to be over. He's going to come, bring it on. He's going to kill me. He's going to kill me. I cannot live this, like this hunted animal anymore. This is enough. By this time, it had been from 1982. This is 1990. I mean, there, there were six arrests leading up to this. So I would hear a noise in the middle of the night and slide out of my bed and crawl through the house on my stomach thinking he was out there for that week. And at the time I was dabbling in real estate. So when I would walk out my door in the morning to go to, go to the office, I would tense up, you know, thinking that like a bullet was going to hit me from somewhere. And I would come home because I had a partial on his license plate. So I would comb the neighborhood looking for his car before I just drove in, right? And, you know, it's just living like that. It's just debilitating. It's, it's all consuming. And so I remember going over to my girlfriend's house about four days into this. One of my best friends, Karen, I went to kindergarten with her all the way up. And I just said, you know, just what I just said. I said, I, I just want him to kill me. I, I just want this to be over. And she said, don't talk like that. You know they're going to get him. It's going to be fine. So I left her house. It was about 4.30 in the afternoon. And I came home. And I was listening to my answering machine. And I turned around. And he was standing behind me with a knife in my home. And because I had been playing it over and over in my head for so many years, the first words out of my mouth were, sit down, I've been expecting you. We need to talk. And I just started talking to him like he was a high school friend. And that completely threw him. It completely threw his power. He became very, you know, you better tell me, you know, because I'm sure he was expecting me to be screaming and crying and whatever, but I wasn't. I was just like, okay. And, And this is the thing. With stalkers, you're not, these people are delusional. There's nothing that you're going to say that's going to make them stop or not stop or whatever. There's no point. And so the rule of thumb, you know, now when I counsel clients that are stalking victims, I make it very clear. Look, do not have any contact with your stalker. Do not try to discuss anything, you know, cut off all communication. But in this situation, this is about, you know, survival. So it wasn't like, you know, I could say anything and he'd go, okay, see you later. You know, he, he was just kind of talking and he, he said, you know, my life's over. This is a felony. Just come, come up to the mountains with me. He wanted to take me up to a cabin in the Trinity Mountains. So I was just kind of talking with him and the phone rang. And I said, you know, you better let me answer that because everybody knows you're missing and somebody's checking on me. And so he stood there and he let me answer the phone. And it was my mom. And I don't know about your mom. I'm getting a little checked up because my mom passed away just recently. But I'm so sorry. Yeah. But she, she would ask me, you know how your mother just doesn't listen? Like you, you, they just keep talking. And so she would ask me a question and I would answer something completely different, hoping that she would figure it out. And she just kept talking. I'm like, oh my God. So finally she said something and I go, Yeah. It is really hot. And she kind of stopped and she said, is everything, is everything okay? And I went, no. And she went, is he there? Is he? And I said, yep. And so she started kind of, oh my God. I said, okay, see you later. And I hung up. So he didn't hear. But at least 
I knew that somebody knew he was there, right? And I knew that someone was going to call the police. So I felt a little better, right? So a few minutes later, the phone rings again and I pick it up and it's police dispatch. It's a woman. And she started talking to me and it was starting to get a little bit awkward now. I could tell that John was getting a little more anxious, right? Wanting me to hang up the phone. And so again, by the grace of God, you can call it God, spirit, angels, innate power, whatever was guiding me that day because I started talking to her like she was a real estate agent or a real estate client. And I was trying to sell her a house on Cloud Avenue. I'll never forget it. When you hear my voice, it, sh- it, it just doesn't sound like me. It was just a guiding spirit that was really helping me through this. The bottom line is she was able to get a lot of information out of me. Like, where is he standing? Does he have a knife? You know, you need to get outside. The police are almost there. So she said, the police are almost there, but you need to get outside because, you know, we don't want like a hostage situation. So I hung up and I waited a little while longer. And then I said, okay, you know, let's go. And so he took me out. We went out through the garage. And when I got out there, he had rope laid out and his jacket. And I'm thinking, how long has this guy been in my house? And so he tied my hands up and, um, you know, said, now don't run and don't scream. And then he pulled out a gun. And at that point I thought, you know, I I mean, it was an out of body experience at that point because all I, all I knew is the police were out there. He's got a gun. I didn't realize he had a gun until then. I I just, it's, you are just in frozen mode. Just, you can't even think straight. And so, um, he, I, for some reason, I said, look, you better put the gun away because if we get out there um, and anybody sees it, you're going to be in trouble or you know, something to, to that avail. And so he did. He put the gun behind his back and um, he put his leather jacket over my hands so nobody could see that my hands were tied. And he took me out the side, you know, the side garage door and, um, you know, opens up the gate and there's my car. He had the keys in my car that's parked in the driveway. And, you know, straight ahead is this street and I have a white picket fence around my, uh, around my house. And I look and there's no one. And so he's putting the keys in the car door and I'm kind of stepping off to the side and a police officer comes from around my mailbox and sure enough has his gun drawn and says, freeze or I'll blow your effing head off. Right. And at that moment, John did not freeze. He pulled the gun out and pointed it at his chest. So the cop didn't shoot him. And in that split second, police came from everywhere. There were just dozens of police officers with their guns drawn pointed at us. And I noticed over in the corner, a tall police officer to my left on the other side of the picket fence, waving his arms for me to run to him. So I had to turn my back to John, who had the gun pointed it at his chest and make that decision to sprint. And that's, I think, what you're referring to, where my track came in very handy, because I will tell you, I ran the fastest 40 meters of my life and hurdled the picket fence with my hands tied. So I got away into the arms of a waiting detective, and it was my father had been standing down there because he got there, you know, he came from from work, and my mom was screaming, saying, you know, John's down there. And so my dad drove down there as fast as he could, but as But by the time he got down there, the whole neighborhood had been blocked off with police. And so 
you know, he heard all of that. My poor father, can you imagine? All he could see was all the police with their guns drawn. He couldn't see me, but he could hear me yelling, right? So that poor guy. Anyway, so I was able to escape and, you know, he kept them at bay on my front porch for the next 11 hours, threatening to kill himself. And finally at 4.30 in the morning, SWAT team went in there and they came into my house, into the garage, secured it. And when John, John was trying to get back into the house, they opened the door on him and tackled him and were able to apprehend him then. So that's the last time, much beyond stalking, obviously, what happened. But that is the last time you had a, a stalking, a, a violent, life-threatening near-death right. encounter with him. Correct. What happened to John next? Well, so John went off to prison. He was charged with attempted kid because remember there were no stalking laws on the books so he was charged with attempted kidnapping because by law he didn't take me far enough which really upset obviously the police everyone involved right so um he was sentenced to eight years ten months and he was out in four but at that time the incident was all over the news and so i was contacted shortly thereafter by a state senator out of Orange County, California, by the name of Ed Royce, who was trying to pass the state and the nation's first anti-stalking laws. And so he contacted me and said, I'm trying to get this legislative legislation passed and I'm getting some pushback. Would you be interested in going up and testifying in front of the state Senate? And I said, oh my, I would love to, right? Because I was so frustrated with the system, this system that there was nothing in place until he actually laid a hand on me. I mean, thank God I'm still here. For, you know. And Ed said, you're the only victim that I know of in my jurisdiction that is still alive. So it really became, so I did. I went up and testified. And that day, the law passed unanimously. And you know, my life changed dramatically because for me, it was like this huge weight was lifted off my shoulders and I was extremely empowered by the fact that, you know, my voice could lead to change and hopefully help people from ever experiencing what I did down the road. And so that's kind of what catapulted me into this whole world and mission that I live now. Yeah. And I want to talk about that. You really are a crime fighter and the fact that you're story and your bravery and your courage and the partnership with the state senator changed the state and the country's laws forever. And how sad that everybody else was dead, that you had to be the voice for all those women because clearly they were not there and present to speak. But I am curious, so four years of the eight-year sentences served, do you remember the day that he was released? Yeah, I, I, I remember the day he was released because I got a, a notification from corrections and he was put on probation for another year and basically had strict parole conditions and had to follow them. So I really didn't hear from him after that. You decide to dedicate your life to personal safety, which is now your work. Why did you? make that choice? Well, after the law passed unanimously, right? And I started training law enforcement all over the country because now stalking was a crime in all the different states, right? So I worked with a group of threat assessment experts and 
I was like the civilian, right? But that had the victim, you know, had the trial by fire skills, right? So I really learned about everything, all the other crimes that were out there as well, because I would sit in on these conferences with these experts in school shootings and domestic violence and, you know, identity, everything, all different types of crime. And the thing that I found was that every, every thing that we read about personal safety or crime prevention was always so negative and daunting. Gavin DeBecker wrote a book called The Gift of Fear. And, you know, he, I, I respect him, but it's, it's, it's like writing to, the gift of fear. It's like a, watching a train, right? I mean, you know, you cower in the corner. It's like, oh my God, the worst thing. And I just don't think that we as women respond to that. We respond to empowerment. You go girl, you know, empowering ways to protect yourself, right? Instead of always this negative, fear-driven information. And so I just really wanted to change the way that personal safety is marketed to women. Because the bottom line is, caring about your personal safety is the greatest gift that you can give yourself. Without that, you know, your life is not fulfilled. You cannot live a free and empowered life if you are not dedicated to making and being responsible for your personal safety. What are the key ways which we can live from that place, empowered about our personal safety and taking actions in the world that keep us safe? Well, it's it's basically truly what I just said, realizing that you have to care about your personal safety. It is a lifestyle. It is a lifestyle that we live, making smart personal safety choices every day. It's, it's, it should be as routine as brushing your teeth. And, you know, the, it's, it's not about being paranoid. It's about being smart. Can you give our audience and me some specific examples of what that looks like in action? Some anecdotes of living from an empowered place and taking actions that keep you safe? Well, it's, it starts with you and really building a perimeter of safety around you virtually and physically. So, you know, where we're most vulnerable is getting from point A to point B. So when you're, I, I say this a lot when I'm, when I'm speaking, I'm, I ask people, hey, how did you get here today? And, and what I mean by that is when you pulled in, when you pulled out of your driveway, did you notice every stop sign, every stoplight, or were you daydreaming or thinking about what you needed to get at the store or whatever? And when you pulled in to the parking place, where did you park? Was that a conscious decision? Did you park close to the entrance, you know, way over in a dark corner? I mean, was that a, did you have any thought that went into where you were parking? And when you walked in here today, who was in front of you? Who was behind you? Did you even know? Because these are the things, being aware of our surroundings is what makes us empowered and positive. I mean, we know what criminals look for. There have been dozens of really good studies done on what predators look for. What do they look for? They look for people that are not paying attention. They look for people that are weak looking, kind of meek looking. I mean, it's, you hear it all the time about the way you carry yourself. And it's true. The person that is distracted talking on the phone has their, their earbuds on too high, you know, oblivious to what's going on around them. And that's the key. When you are out getting from point A to point B, you, you must dedicate yourself to being aware. That doesn't mean that you can't talk on your phone and all that, but I've shown people, like when you're walking down the street, 
you can use a storefront to see behind you, all the way behind you, or, or a car reflection in a mirror. Try it. I'm just saying that you can use your surroundings to your advantage. So it's just, it's just developing a calm and empowered, confident lifestyle. And again, it's not about being paranoid because when you're paranoid and neurotic and you know, worried about all these things, your world becomes very narrow versus being calm and empowered and informed. Your shoulders go back. It's, it's just a natural progression in how you relate to the world by starting with the core feeling of caring about your personal safety and paying attention to it. Well, I kind of like that. There's like, I think at this moment in time, we all see it. Everyone is staring at their phone, like crossing the street, crossing the crosswalk, sitting in their car, waiting in the grocery store. I heard like gum sales are way down. No one buys gum anymore because they don't look at the checkout stand because they're looking down. Oh my God. Well, could could be. Yeah. To be aware and to be present and not only to see if there is something that feels trigger something within you, but just to be present in the world, to see the people that are around you, whether they're beautiful or evoking, you know, some sort of sense of a lack of safety is really, if there was that societal shift that we were all present and showing up in that world. So my guess is the gift of personal safety and and living from a place of confidence and empowerment and presence of your surrounding has a multitude of you know, empowering and, and positive implications. Well, it translates It translates into every aspect of your life. It makes you a better mother. It makes you a better worker. It makes you a better friend because you're, you know, you're not oblivious. You're, you're in tune and, and you're functioning on a positive and empowered level. You talked about this exercise of asking yourself, what is my greatest personal fear? What is my greatest personal safety fear? From there... What is the exercise? We go back to the knowledge is power thing. So ask yourself, what is your greatest personal safety fear? And then I want you to do something about it in the next couple of weeks. If it's, gosh, I hate being home alone. My husband travels all the time. I'm so, feel so unsafe in my house. Well, get a security system. Get an alarm system. Light up the perimeter of your home. As I was going back to, you know, you have to build a perimeter around you virtually and physically. So there's different layers to your home that you want you want to secure, right? So that helps you feel secure in your in your home. If it's, you know, I'm worried that I'm going to be attacked. I'm worried that I'm going to be a rape. Well, go find I love impact model mugging. That the, there's all kinds. Personal safety is personal right? It makes, it's, it's what you feel comfortable doing. But I truly believe for every woman, I don't care, old, young, big, small, should take some type of self-defense because that knowledge, that inner knowledge of just even having that does empower you, does give you a little peace of mind, right? Those are the kinds of things that I'm talking about. Knowledge is power and doing things managing your own personal safety goes to the core of what I'm saying. It's the greatest gift that you can give yourself. Do you know where John is today? And is that fear gone for you? Yeah. The, I mean, the fear is gone for me, but make no mistake. I'm, I am so in tune with living what I preach, right? So I'm always aware of my surroundings, right? And I keep, you know, my whereabouts close to the vest. And yes, I, I do know where he is, but 
you know, it's, it's not fear. It really isn't. It's, it's, it's different. And, and that's the thing to, to women out there that are being stalked. It really is so important to become your own case manager, do something about it, go down, document everything. And, and, you know, we can have some maybe link on your website to, to my website, because I have a, you know, step-by-step list of what to do if you're being stalked, because it's really important in order for somebody to be picked up or arrested for stalking the way the laws read, and they do read different in every state. So you, you need to, in county. So you need to go down to your police department and really um, understand. But for the most part, you have to prove a laundry list of behavior. So that's why it's really important to document, save all evidence, and really build your case. Two reasons. One, it makes it easier for the police to help you. And two, it empowers you because you're not in the corner sucking your thumb, cowering. You're doing something to help get this person out of your life. We will absolutely link to that and make sure people can access it. Is empowered as you are today and turning this into something that has been a gift to many, has undoubtedly saved lives, you experienced something that was deeply traumatic for an extended period. What have been your greatest tools, and your journey of healing from that trauma? One of the biggest tools, honestly, is humor, is laughing. And because it's just, like you said, it's a made-for-TV movie, right? And it's just, it's just incredible. So, you know, always keeping the positive and not dwelling on the negative. And I really do work at, I love talking with women of all ages. What I love is getting these adolescent girls. And when, when I talk, I make the girls sit in the front and the moms, you know, sit in the back, but I talk pretty straight about a lot of stuff. Right. And in, you know, situations, things they get into all that kind of stuff. And the biggest like compliment or where I'm going, Oh, they're getting it is I get a lot of comments from the moms and the daughters years later that what was invaluable from going and hearing me speak and that whole experience was the dialogue that opened up between the two of them on the car ride home because they each see each other as women and, and you know, why personal safety, why crime prevention is so important as a woman. And that really is, is what my, what the whole point of safety chick is, is just really creating that dialogue. Well, that, again, you're saving lives and it's multi-generational at this point. And they, I know, will go on as a mom of two young daughters to be empowered in the world with hopefully their head up and very present of where they are. So thank you, Kathleen. There's a wealth of information here, which I love not only for our audience to hear how you weathered your personal story and and how it shaped your life and you used it as a a tool to change the world, but also to get the information, which is critical and and hear your story and message. So thank you for that. Well, I'm really, really, really honored that you chose me as one of this incredible, the project that you're doing, I think is fantastic as well. So thank you. I appreciate it. We end with something called rapid fire. So (laughs) you ready? 
I, I, I guess. You, you got this. Okay. You're a superhero. You can totally handle <laughs> rapid fire. Hello. Favorite binge-worthy show? Anything by Ricky Gervais. Nice. Best way to spend a Friday night? On my balcony that overlooks the ocean and having maybe an adult beverage or two. (laughs) (laughs) Biggest pet peeve? Predators. (laughs) Well said. Morning ritual? Oh, see, this is kind of personal, but I'll tell you. You know, my mom recently passed and my dad passed a few years ago and they left my brothers and I a nice gift. And so every morning I sit on the edge of my bed, I put my hands up over my head and I say, best day ever, because I'm wanting it to be the best day ever, setting that intention. I put both feet on the floor. Then I reach my hands out and I say, thank you, mom and dad. And then I put them down and I just picture my mom and dad in my head. I love that. That's a great start to the day. You are the mom of three grown boys. What is your greatest hope for your children? I just want them to really find peace and happiness and spirituality, if that makes sense. Because when you have grown boys and the men, 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 football all the time kind of thing, you know, my boys are lovely humans. They are. But as you go through life and things happen, you know, the stress, stress, I just want for them true inner peace and just really to have that innate feeling of always living, like I just said, their best day ever. Well, they certainly have an example of a strong, empowered, impactful mom, which makes a difference, I think, in how they will go on to experience the women in their lives. All right, Kathleen, you're a rock star, as we all know now. And thank you for making the time today. Thanks for having me. Really, thank you very much. Today's interview with Kathleen supports SPARK, the Stalking Prevention Awareness and Resource Center. SPARK is a federally funded project that provides education and resources on all things crime of stalking. They keep victims safe and hold the offenders accountable and work on the front lines with the tireless professionals who specialize in identifying and responding to the crime of stalking. You can read more about Spark online at stalkingawareness.org. I also want to let you know about Kathleen's website, Safety Chick. She has a ton of great resources and information to help keep you and your loved ones safe. And she's also in the process of developing a wearable product that can call for help with the touch of a button and may just be a game changer. You can learn more and find links to both in our show notes. Thank you for listening. Be well and stay safe. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Podkit Productions. Our sound engineer is Kelly Kramerick, and our associate producer is Kessie Hollister. Thanks for being a part of the All the Wiser podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast, read our show notes, or get in touch with us at allthewiserpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at All the Wiser Podcast. Send us a note 
We would love to hear from you. And as always, thanks for listening. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.